start the book of Hebrews. There's lots of people who don't believe that the book of Hebrews ought to be in Scripture. I am not one of them. I am perfectly happy with the book of Hebrews. I think it's perfectly good Scripture. There are, however, some factual errors in it. For example, when he talks about Yeshua going into the uh, temple, he's got the order of the furniture incorrect. And when we get there, we'll point those things out. I don't think that's a big deal. It's sort of like Stephen, when he's being stoned, repeats the history of Israel, and he makes a couple of minor mistakes, and he can sort of give him a little slack since he's in the process of being stoned. That's the other thing, is nobody, of course, knows who wrote it. I kind of think Paul did, but it doesn't really matter. The other thing that's really important about this book is it's written to Hebrews. It is not written to the church, as in the Gentile church. It's not written to Gentiles at all. It's written to Hebrews. So he talks about stuff and just assumes that they know what he's talking about. It's sort of like when somebody new comes into a midrash here and we're talking among ourselves and you can just see the eyes rolling back up into the top of their head because they got no idea what we're talking about. We've been talking about it for decades. So we just rattle on, and to a newcomer, it can sometimes be very disorienting and confusing. So when Paul is writing letters mostly to Gentiles, he takes a fair amount of pains to explain what he's talking about. In Hebrews, whoever wrote this does not do that. He just assumes that he's talking to people that know the scriptures. I have said in the past that this is a commentary on Psalm 110. That's perhaps a little too specific, but it works. It's also a commentary on Psalm 2. A lot of quotes from the Psalms, assuming that everybody knows what's going on. Let me start, because I'm going to get about one verse in, and then we're going to stop. Two verses in, maybe. So, Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in... These last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Let's stop there a minute. First off, talking about our ancestors. So the writer is a Hebrew, and the audience are Hebrews. But more important, I think, is this idea that Yeshua has been appointed heir of all things. One of the things that this book is going to spend a lot of time working on is the concept of heirship, the concept of testaments, the concept of kinship. So the argument is going to be that Yeshua is heir to all things. We, because we are also children of Adam, just like Yeshua is a child of Adam, are related to him, therefore we are members of his household, therefore we inherit with him. So he starts off, first rattle out of the box, second verse, saying that Yeshua is heir to everything. So he's going to expand on that as we go along and explain why that is and so forth. You all know the history of the church, at least as well as I do. You realize that there were a great many Jews Hebrews, who did not accept him as the Messiah. You had Messianic Jews like Paul and so forth who did, 
but you had a very significant chunk of Judaism that didn't think he was the Messiah. So the other thing that this letter is doing is writing to Hebrews, Jews, and saying, this guy is the Son of God, this guy is the heir, this guy is the Messiah. And so he's making that argument, if you will, to Hebrews, and specifically to Hebrews who don't necessarily believe that all of that's true. So let's start with heir of all things. And a cross-reference to that is Psalm 2. Now let's go over to Psalm 2 briefly because getting a bead on that will be helpful. Psalm 2 is a conversation with three voices. You have the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and the voice of a narrator. And I am asserting that the narrator is the Holy Spirit. So Psalm 2 starts with the narrator. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Jehovah, and against his anointed, the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there, in this case, is Jehovah and the Messiah. Those are the ones who have the kings of the earth in bondage, or at least they think they're in bondage, and they're plotting to cast off the cords of the Messiah and God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, all right, now voice switches here. So the narrator says, this is what somebody is going to say. And so verse 6 is another voice. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I'm asserting that that's the father speaking. The father is being quoted by the narrator here. And again, I'm asserting that the narrator is the spirit. So verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In my translation, verse 6 begins and ends with quotation marks. So, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So verse 7 then is the son. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is still in quotation mark. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, close quote. So what the son is doing is quoting what the father said to him. Change voice again, the spirit. Now, therefore, O kings, in other words, the, the Spirit is now speaking to the people who are reading the song. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, as I say, you've got three voices in this psalm. You've got the voice of the narrator, the Spirit, which is talking to the kings. Then you've got the quote from God, and then you have the son quoting what the father said to him. 
And the big deal here is in verse 8, which is what is quoted back in Hebrews 1. And verse 8 says, this is the Son quoting the Father now, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So there is where the Son gets to be the one who inherits the earth. And that's quoted back in Hebrews 1. Now, Hebrews is going to do a lot of that. They're going to throw these things out. And if you don't know the scriptures, or gee, how does he get, he's the heir. How does he get this? How does he get that? And every one of these things is a quotation, mostly from Psalms, sometimes from Isaiah. We've talked about this in the context of Ephesians chapter 1. And Ray gave a very nice explanation of it. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. And Ray, being a real estate guy at one point in his life, says what's happened there is the contract has been signed, but we have not yet taken possession of our inheritance. And we have a marker or an earnest, who is the Holy Spirit, that we in fact do have inheritance. We have not yet taken possession. I am asserting here that Yeshua is also the heir, as Hebrews says, and as Psalm 2 says, the covenant has been cut. It was cut in his blood. The covenant is ratified, but he has not yet taken possession of his inheritance. And he won't take possession of his inheritance until he returns. As he ascended into heaven, he went up and he signed the contract, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So in real estate terms, he's put down his earnest money, the contract has been signed, but we have not yet had the closing, which is the next thing. So what Psalm 2 does is establishes that Yeshua is the heir. And it's quoted here in Hebrews 1, verse 2, that he's the heir. It also says, oh, by the way, through him also he created the world. One of the things that all Trinitarians believe, and I am firmly Trinitarian, there are Messianics who aren't, but I am, is that Yeshua existed before he was physically born to a virgin. And what it says here in other places in Scripture also is that he is the one who created the world. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, how is the world created? With the word. God said, Yeshua is the guy with a voice. The power source of God is the Holy Spirit. So the power is in the Holy Spirit, but the voice is in the Messiah. And so when it says, God said, let there be, what we're talking about is the Messiah is speaking those things out. And the three of them are together at the creation of the world. So for example, in Genesis it says, let us make man in our own image. And the question is, who's us? Now, I believe that it is God in three persons who is talking to himself, if you will. The rabbis, however, believe that he's talking to angels. So if you study this from a rabbinic point of view, you'll get angels. If you study it from a Trinitarian point of view, you'll get the three members of the Godhead discussing as they create things. One of the things that happens in Scripture is very often there are triplets. 
And the one that I remember off the top of my head is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Power, love, and a sound mind are a triplet. Power, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. A sound mind, I believe, is the Messiah. What's the other one? Love. See lots of instances in Scripture where it says the Father's love, God is love, and so forth. So I do it that way. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is all by way of describing who Yeshua is. The image of God. He's the word of his power. And he made purification for sin by shedding his blood. And then he sits down at the right hand of God and is waiting, if you will, for the time when he, in fact, takes possession of his inheritance. And as a sidebar, I personally believe that what's going on in Revelation with the seals is they are up in heaven and they are opening the seals which are the deed to the earth and you know the party of the first part and the party of the second part you know that kind of legal stuff the party of the first part is God the party of the second part is the Messiah so every time a papa seal party of the second that's you the lamb and when we get to the end of it all the seals have been opened and at that point he will be certified if you will as the owner of the place. And then we start going into trumpets and so forth. But I think that's what's going on personally. Verse 4 again, Messiah, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's a quotation from Second Samuel. So let's go there. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what it is, is God is talking to David through Nathan the prophet. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall affect them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judge over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So this is a covenant that goes beyond the physical lifetime of David. Verse 13. He, your offspring, he shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what you have here is verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What we've got is Nathan is speaking to David. And he is speaking, starting with Solomon, going all the way to Yeshua. Because there's going to be a line of kings that are going to come from David. Okay? And the last of the kings that comes from David is going to be Yeshua. In between David and Yeshua, there are going to be some kings that are going to need to be corrected. And God does that. He sends Babylonians out and he sends Assyrians out and so forth. And he does, in fact, correct the kings of Israel and the nation Israel. But that isn't necessarily saying that he is correcting Yeshua. Now, the other thing that happens to Yeshua, however, is Yeshua, in fact, does receive stripes of men and is killed by men. And in that sense, he dies in our place and he assumes the role of sinful man at the crucifixion so that his death is then sufficient for our sins. We're back to Hebrews 1 now. Verse 5 again. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So what he's describing here is the difference between God's firstborn and angels. Now, God's firstborn. Who is God's firstborn? Remember, at the time of the Exodus, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. Let my firstborn go, that they come and worship me. But then we had a series of trades. So the first trade is Israel got traded for the Levites. Remember the swap they did in the desert and there was something like 200 pieces of silver difference and they had to come up with a couple hundred pieces of silver to make the swap clean. So then you had a swap between Levites and the priests and then the last swap then comes to Yeshua. This is what I would describe as some fairly heavy theology. And in order to understand it, you've got to have a background in the entire Torah and the history of Israel. So what God is saying to David is, I will make your descendants as my sons. And who's the last descendant? Yeshua. One of the things that happens in all these cases is you have either blood or an exchange of silver. Because remember, Yeshua is purchased for 30 pieces of silver, isn't he? I mean, they, that, that's what Judas betrays him for. So silver and blood are both used in affecting these trades. And when the Levites were traded for all of Israel, 
you had a, a sacrifice, but you also had more firstborn than you had Levites. And so you had some firstborn that were still hanging out there that didn't have Levites to be swapped for them. So those people were redeemed with silver. And silver, in this case, represents blood. So back to Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. So what he's talking about is Yeshua there, when, when Yeshua is born, when he comes into the world. Because remember, up above, we say that Yeshua was with God when he created the universe. But he had not yet been brought into the world as the firstborn. So, verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And that is a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And notice, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You have loved righteousness and hated witness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So somebody has been anointed. In this case, it's the Messiah. And then verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. This is in Greek, so you can't take much from them. But in this translation, it's... Lord, as would I suspect be called Adonai. And it's Greek, so you understand that you can't take that. But the point is, he has said before, at the beginning of the chapter, that Yeshua was there at the creation of the world. So, talking to Yeshua, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. You, Yeshua, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. By the way, this is a quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27. So what he's asserting here is Psalm 102 is talking about the Messiah, who is the one who laid the foundation of the world. There's a lot of stuff. And like I said at the beginning, whoever wrote this assumes that the people who read it understand all this. So he's just sort of tripping off these references and just blasting along. And I suspect that he's not spending 45 minutes getting through five verses. The writer here, is directly refuting the rabbinic idea that a lot of these theophanies in the Old Testament, a lot of the references in the Old Testament, are either to Israel or to angels. And what the writer of Hebrews is going straight against that argument and saying, no, in all cases, what it's talking about here is the Messiah, and this is why. So we're all the way down to verse 13, I think. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, that's back in Psalm 2. Remember that we led off with. We read Psalm 2 and the conversation between three parties there. And in Psalm 2, it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what the writer of Hebrews is asserting is that's not an angel. He never said that to an angel. He's talking about the Messiah there. 
And then verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So who are the ministering spirits? Angels. Angels have got things to do. We see them in uh, the book of Daniel. We see them in the book of Revelation. We see them in the Gospels. For example, at the conception of Samson, some angelic being shows up. There isn't any necessity that that would be Yeshua. So the idea is that the messengers or angels that show up in Scripture, Jacob leaves Israel and comes back. He meets angels. These are not necessarily Yeshua. So you have both angelic beings and you have this one special being who is the Son of God, who is the heir. And since he is the Son of God and since he is the heir and since he is also a son of Adam, the next thing that's going to be established is we are his kin. And because he's the one who owns the place and because we are his kinfolk, that means that we are part of his household and that means that we also have an inheritance. We're not there yet, but we will be. 